And that raises the question of what kind of person should I be? And once I ask that question, I'm getting at what I'm calling our deeper desire. You know, what does it mean for me to live a good life? What does it mean for me to inhabit the kind of relationships I want? And everybody kind of navigates their lives according to these things. It's just that we don't step back and talk about it very much. Well, you may run into some people who say like, hey, I don't think that Christianity is true and I'm glad that it's not. Well, there's a lot of videos that I have kind of trying to answer that first part of that challenge or that comment that Christianity really is true and there's good reason to believe. But today's conversation is going to focus in on the second part of that comment that they're glad that Christianity's not true. And we're going to look at this and try to show you that it actually... Christianity being true is a good thing and that our deep desires and these wonderful things in life not only come from God, but point back to God and are best satisfied and made sense of within the Christian story. And so that is going to be the conversation day, and it is going to be a fun one. My name is Ryan Polly, and this is the show Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith so that you can engage the culture well. And today, hopefully helping you point people to the goodness and truth of Christianity. Today, my guest is Dr. Gray Gansel. He is a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and was actually the the former professor of the doctoral program that I'm a part of, the Doctor of Ministry and Engaging Mind and Culture. And it was based on a conversation that we had when he came on the show back in 2020, where I said, hey, I really want to join your program. And he said, well, hey, why don't you sign up? I think, you know, you, you you qualify with the degree that you have. And sure enough, I did. And so now I'm studying that. It's now under a different professor. But thank you for kind of pushing me towards that direction. And thanks for coming on the show to discuss your book. Today that we're going to be talking about is the book titled Our Deep deepest desires. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Sure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So as we kind of jump in, um, kind of curious, this this book that you've written, Our Deepest Desires, um, what kind of led you? Why why this book? Why is this something that you were kind of spending some time thinking about? Well, um, well, it was exactly how you set it up. You know, I've I've done a lot of writing in the philosophy of religion, academically, popular level stuff. Um, trying to defend the existence of God and things like this. But more and more, I find people less concerned about whether something is true um, and more concerned, does it make sense out of my life? Is it something that provides um, kind of a framework for living? And it's not that people, I wouldn't want to say that people don't care about truth, but the question of whether something is true only gets traction for a person if if the subject matters. And for most people in our um, pretty secular context, um, Christianity doesn't matter at all. It's just not seen as as relevant or offering anything. And so the question of whether it's true is something people don't lie awake at night and worry about. Yeah. And, um, and, and I wanted to get into that part of of the discussion. I actually wrote the book to be a conversation starter for people. It wasn't written to people who were already Christians and wanted to sort these things out. It was something you could give to a thinking person to help start a conversation on um, how the Christian story captures our deepest aspirations. Yeah. And so that that's kind of born out of these questions, how to connect the Christian story to people on a um, more, you, you could say, existential level rather than just a theoretical level. Yeah. So the subtitle of your book, Our Deepest Desires, How the Christian Story Fulfills Human Aspirations. You know, kind of maybe let's start here at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. of what it like, the comment of, like we have a lot of desires. So what are we kind of right. talking about here when you talk about your deepest desires? What is what what are these desires and and how then does the Christian story kind of make sense of it? How's, how are our desires connected to Christianity? Yeah, I think um, everybody has a whole bunch of desires and for most of us, we don't think a lot about how they're structured or anything. Uh, we have what we could call surface desires. Sometimes I call them vacation desires, right? Like I just want to sit on the back porch and drink a glass of wine and enjoy the sunset. Um, but um, And those are important enough, 
But if we peel back the layer, it doesn't take too long for us to encounter um, things that matter more to us, things about relationships, things about um, a sense that my life is going well, things that we might say contribute to human flourishing. Um, what makes a really good life for me? Well, I'm going to come up with ideas of that. And in the book, I, I, I argue, well, I don't argue, I just kind of claim that um, a lot of these desires are common to people. And, and most people have, have a, a structure of values that, um, that persons are at the center of most of our values. Other people, ourselves, the people we love, relationships matter to us. Um, the book is broken, as you know, into sections, and personhood is one of the sections, goodness, um, beauty, and freedom. And I'm not arguing that these are all of the desires we have, but I think these right. are pretty widespread. Yeah. Um, and so if we can talk about these, then that gets the conversation going. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you kind of mentioned in the book is how, you know, maybe a lot of people are not spending time navigating really how these, how, um, navigating these deep questions and really how these deep questions are forming them and really mm -hmm. kind of forming their life. Um, you know, so what would you say to kind of those listening is like, how do we now, cause I'm assuming for anyone listening finds this sort of conversation interesting because that's why they're listening to it. But how can we then take this out and say, Hey, I want to try to encourage other people to think deeper about life, their deeper desires, rather than staying on those surface level desires. Yeah. I mean, I, th I, I think it, it's actually not as difficult as, as it might seem because the de our deeper desires are under the surface, but they're not, they're not hidden too deeply. I mean, we all navigate, I like the word navigate, navigate our lives um, based on what we think it's good to be or to do. And that raises the question of what kind of person should I be? Um, and once I ask that question, I'm, I'm getting at what I'm calling our deeper desires. You know, what, what does it mean for me to live a good life? What does it mean for me to inhabit... Um, the kind of relationships I want. Uh, and, and everybody kind of navigates their lives according to these things. It's just that we don't step back and talk about it very much. Right. Um, one way to look at it is, is certain things make sense to us when, I don't mean cognitively make sense, but in terms of our choices in our life, when it fits into the things we think matter the most. And, and so when we look at how we make decisions, we think, oh, yeah, I made this decision because it was good for my family, or I made this decision because um, these are the things I value. And, and that can reveal kind of the contours of our, of our deeper desires. Yeah. Um, now, what then, I mean, because I think as you're kind of talking about that is, is each person is kind of trying to answer these questions for themselves of, of really kind right. of what is shaping them and what they desire and what they want their life to be. It almost sounds a little bit subjective, like that you can have any mm -hmm. sort of desire and that becomes good. So yep. how do we then kind of come back and frame this within the context of, no, there's actually right and wrong desires that you should be shaping mm -hmm. your life according to rather than just simply creating it yourself? Yeah, well, I think there is an element where desires are subjective. Um, and, you know, just because something's subjective doesn't mean it's, you know, a problem. Because yeah. the subjective part is, I have a desire because it's something I, the subject, desire. Right. Right. So there's an intrinsic subjectiveness to desires. Um, there might also be, as you're as you're mentioning, an objective aspect to desires in the sense that some desires are are better than others or, or more conducive to our flourishing. Um, in the book, I, I, I really wasn't arguing that these desires are better on an objective scale. I was, I was trying to um, kind of draw out a kind of sense of recognition that a person would say, yeah, those, are, those things are important to me. 
Yeah. And then I would talk about the, how the Christian story connects with those things, explains them, um, grounds them. So a person who has that recognition can say, wow, now I see how Christianity connects with things that I already value. Now, if someone doesn't have the same desires, I really don't argue that they should. Um, you just, I'm just assuming these are widespread even though I know there's going to be exceptions on certain counts. Right. Um, but you're right that desires are have an intrinsic subjectivity to them. And therefore, we can just ask people, what, are these the kinds of things you want? Or what kind of person do you think you want to be? Yeah. And, and how a person answers that gives you a sense of some of their deeper desires. Yeah. So, for example, like in the chapter on uh, relationships and like personhood, uh, you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about this idea that um, the fact that people matter most is something that we rarely consciously think about. But it's also a deep commitment that pretty much everything everybody shares. Um, right. And you kind of give the example of reflecting on it of a few different things. Like when 9-11 happened, we mourned the loss of people, not the loss of buildings. Or when the plane was about to crash, people were calling not their work to check on some assignment that was due or project, but they're calling yeah. their loved ones to say goodbye. And so we have this recognition that people matter. And I think that's something that we can mm -hmm. pull out of most people. Um, and so mm -hmm. it seems like what you're saying here in that subjective objective is, is that what you're doing more so is pulling out the fact that most people already recognize this to be true. Yes. And it is mm -hmm. a true objective fact about reality that people matter more than buildings um, rather than, you know, and, and then maybe using that to where if someone mm -hmm. does say, no, I don't think it's true that people matter more than buildings mm -hmm. um, that we can, how, how, can we just use kind of our, our intuition to have that conversation mm -hmm. or is that kind of what you're doing there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm appealing to the intuition. And if someone were to say in a conversation, Oh, I, I don't think people have the value you say they do. Then I would say, well, that part's not going to persuade you that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm making a connection between things and um, I don't, I don't think there are very many people like that. Right. Um, if, if any, um, but um, the so it's so it's more it's more kind of shining a light on things that that I have a hunch are very common and saying, look, if you share this intuition, then let me show you how we can make better sense of that in the Christian story than in, you know, your general atheistic story. Yeah. Um, so, so how, how would, okay, because I think this is where, you know, as we have our eyes on culture, I remember mm -hmm. as the years have gone on, there's been different things like the Me Too movement. And there's, there's a lot right. of things like that. And the, you know, what we push against with racism that we recognize, like, no, there is an equality of all people. Uh, and that mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or where you were born right. or your gender, uh, that all people are equal. And there's this common sense kind of view mm -hmm. that we have with that. And when someone strips that away or takes it or abuses someone because mm -hmm. they're different, we go, oh, that's bad. That's wrong. Um, right. How then, as you say, the Christian story makes better sense of that. How would a more naturalistic, secular, atheistic story mm -hmm. try to explain this kind of intrinsic value or universal value in all persons? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to be, this is where as Christians, we, it, we would do well to be careful um, not, to, not to think that the atheistic story doesn't have a story to tell about why we value people. Right. Right. Because, uh, because, well, there are many different atheistic stories, but in general, um, in, in the context of a rejection of God or not thinking about God at all, um, people do value each other. They, they do have relationships that matter to them. Um, and so what grounds that is going to be a combination of something that's partly subjective, I find myself with these values and these desires and and that's what gives them valuable. Uh, that's what makes them valuable to me. It's kind of like, you know, um, a love of music, right? What makes music valuable is that you value it in a sense. Yeah. Um, but, um, but there's also... Um, I think the recognition that's possible in an atheistic story, it's not a contradiction, that um, good relationships contribute to human flourishing. We do better. We do well 
we live a better life if we embody our relationships with um, virtues such as kindness, humility, gentleness, sacrificial love, and these kinds of things. So, so it's not that the atheistic story can't make any sense out of it. But what's interesting is um, if in, in an atheistic worldview, people, uh, personhood has no cosmic meaning, right? People came on the scene entirely by accident with no plan and um, no destiny, so to speak. Whereas in the Christian story, um, personhood is the deep, one of the deepest things in reality because God himself is personal. Yeah. And so it, it, our, our being persons tracks with deep reality, whereas an atheistic story, our being persons, is kind of a cosmic accident. Now, it doesn't mean we don't find value in these things, but, but there's kind of a tension between how deeply we value people and how superfluous and accidental they are in the history of the cosmos. Right. But you don't get that same tension in a, in a Christian story. Right. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned here as well of with that, um, in the Christian story, God has a purpose for our existence. Therefore there's mm-hmm. meaning as well as value, but then there's yeah. also the sense of, and I'm trying to find the quote here exactly. Um, but, uh, because if, if God does not exist and we're atheistic story, then it would it be true then to say that we invented kind of, or we mm-hmm. kind of came up with that value. And therefore, mm-hmm. as you mentioned here, I found it says, uh, therefore reason, if it comes from God, then we cannot erase or cancel um, any human being. There is nothing that one human can do to annul the real objective value of another human being. And so if it is built into us, created into us, then there's nothing you can do to Mm -hmm. erase it from someone else. But if it is not something uh, that is built into us, um, then Mm. um, you can try to kind of ignore that, but the culture can kind of just strip it away or someone comes along and says, I'm sorry, you don't have it anymore. Yeah, I think think that's a, a very real conceptual possibility um and i don't i'm I'm not sure it's likely given where we are now in culture because there are um there's a lot of momentum towards recognizing the equal value of people across nationalities language gender religion what have you um and that that has a lot of momentum those ideas um, and so if someone were to challenge that or, you know, say you get uh, a Hitler-like situation trying to eliminate, you know, eth- any kind of ethnic cleansing, it, it's really pushing against a pretty deeply established sens- sensibility across the world. It's not that it doesn't happen because we do have cases of ethnic cleansing, um, but that that sense that deep sense of universal equal value of persons is is a little bit groundless in the atheistic story um there there's not there's not a cosmic reason why the human species that every member of the human species should have equal value i mean a lot of historians are recognizing now that that actually came from the um, Abrahamic religions where God created human beings with a purpose. You know, it's not distinct to Christianity, but Judaism, Islam have, have these values as well. Um, because the value of human people are grounded in the purposes of God, that's what guarantees the universality and the egalitarian nature of value. Now, that's trickled into culture and and when our culture is becoming more secularized, um, the ground for those convictions is is uh, not disappearing, but there's less and less weight being put on it. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in 100 years, um, whether the equal... Um, the commitment to equal value of everybody will be sustainable. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is Nietzsche's story with the death of God, right? Yeah. All of these things are going to unravel. 
Yeah. So one of the things when you came and lectured to our doctoral cohort uh, back in May, you know, and I think that kind of fits in here is talking about kind of the different ways in which people explain things versus kind of a bottom up explanation that yes. comes from the enlightenment versus uh, mm-hmm. top down explanation, like the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it almost sounds like, like there's a, there's a lot of people today that says, look, we don't need this top down approach. We don't need right. these objective mm-hmm. transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. The fact is that we as a culture, as you just mentioned, uh, we as a culture agree that people have equal human value. And so that's all we need to get that same result of having Mm -hmm. equal human value. So almost kind of this, um, this kind of social contract theory, so to speak, is that Mm -hmm. we just have come together and decided this and therefore it kind of gets the same result. Is that a a good enough explanation or do you see some, some places where that's lacking? Well, uh, um, in the short term, it might be functionally good enough. Right. It's not, it, you know, it, it's, it's enough to kind of put the brakes on any um, movement that's trying to um, cancel that equal value um, commitment. Um, but but it, it, it certainly is a tenuous commitment. I mean, social contract is always very tenuous because social contracts can be annulled. And, and we can, we can um, as C.S. Lewis often says, you know, if, if your values are grounded in what works best for society, then you, you've got an absolute commitment to what's best for society. Um, and unless you have that commitment, then you can't ground your other values. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I think there's some internal tension to that view. But I, I, but functionally, it, it, it'll hold up for a while. Yeah. Um, but and but what we're doing oh, yeah, is, you know, the the important thing about contrasting atheistic stories and the Christian story here is not is it impossible on atheism to have that commitment? Because I think the answer is no. But which of these theories, Christian story of the world, atheist story of the world? has a better explanation for why we actually have the value we have. And and there, I think it's pretty clear that the Christian story grounds and explains these commitments much better. Yeah. Yeah. And as you kind of mentioned to us that, that the, you know, it all comes together in a Christian world because the doctrine of creation gives us a kind of a yep. both and when it comes to top down or bottom up, it's not either or, yep. but it's both and as God created the transcendentals as well as the real world. And so yep. uh, our fulfillment and kind of is fulfilling the creation mm-hmm. mandate really kind of fulfills these things. Now, when it comes then to this idea of kind of our desires, what about someone says, well, but you know, our desires have been twisted and corrupted by sin. How can we really Mm -hmm. trust them? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and and I think that's true in in the Christian story, the doctrine of um, the universal fall, um, everything is twisted, but it's not annihilated. Um, And this is one of the really important correctives to some popular Christian theology. Um, sometimes Christians talk as if our sin um, cancels all of the goodness God put into the world. And that just seems crazy to me. Um, it's as if sin is more powerful than God. Um, now, everything is twisted by our rebellion against God. Um, and, and so... Our desires are, uh, we need to have a healthy skepticism of any particular desire, of any particular goal, and any particular assumption. Um, and and, and we, we want to be checking these things against each other and com- trying to come up with the most coherent picture. And of course, if you're, in, if you're worried about the sin problem, then you're operating within a Christian framework probably. Right. Um, we're given a lot of confidence that um, despite the sin problem, um, the world is still a good place. Yeah. And we, we can make good things out of the world. I mean, it's important that in Genesis 3, after sin, when God pronounces judgments, he says to Adam, he doesn't say to Adam, you know, I told you guys to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate the earth, but now you can't do that anymore. He says, now it's going to be hard. 
There'll be thorns and thistles is the image. The soil will be hard. The earth won't be as responsive to human cultivation. So we still have the same task. But now we have to kind of push back the effects of evil in order to bring good out of the world. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I want to recognize that, yeah, of course our desires are twisted and we're bent upon ourselves. We have this intrinsic or this, or this persistent bent toward, toward self-centeredness. Um, but that doesn't mean that our desires still can't be clues to reality. And we have, we have to think them through and think them through in a theological framework. Um, so I don't know if you want to say more about that. Well, yeah, yeah, I just think because I think, you know, part of this is, you know, as, as you kind of read through this and again, I'm looking at your book as well as my lecture notes from when you came in and talked yeah. to our class. But this idea is like, what do we need? Because like, if it's kind of like how our desires point to God, um, you know, mm-hmm. we ask this question in class of what do we need in order to have a desire for God? Um, mm-hmm. And you made the comment of like, we should wish that Christianity is true. Uh, but then, you right. know, you, someone could point to scripture and say, but but people don't have a desire for God. They have a, they're a slave to sin and they have a desire for him. And they're not going to want to wish that Christianity is true. So how do we uh, kind of as Christians think through this of like, we're saying, hey, people, as I even put in the kind of the video, like you should wish that Christianity is true. um, Yet at the same time, because of our sin nature, they're not maybe going to wish that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think uh, we have conflicting desires. I mean, and and we see this in all of our relationships. Right. I, I want to, you know, have a great marriage. But I also want to just sit and not do anything to help my wife, right? <laughs> Those are conflicting <laughs> desires, and 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 we. It, it, it's not a strange thing to anybody that we have to sift through conflicting desires. Um, so that by itself is not an objection. Um, I I think um, um, some some Christians think that our rebellion against God is so exhaustively complete that we couldn't even wish Christianity is true. I, d- I don't think that's the case. I think people who, you know, atheists or, or people who never think about the question but aren't Christians, they aspire to good things. They recognize beauty and good relationships and, and human flourishing. I mean, the image of God that is put in us at creation is not erased by sin. Right. Um, and and I, I think this is an important message for, for Christians because, because, well, there's kind of, there's, <laughs> there's kind of a backlash. So, so the, the secular culture tends to have the flavor and I'm trying, I'm being really loose here of saying human beings are, are perfectly adequate the way that they are. And Christians respond to that by saying, no, wait a minute, we're deeply flawed because of our rebellion against God. And sometimes in our trying to emphasize that, we tell a story that's so bleak that it's not actually true. Um, mm. the, the, nobody is spiritually or morally adequate on their own. We, we all need a savior. We all need regeneration. But, but um, people who aren't believers accomplish and aspire to good things. Yeah. And, and, and really, every, every Christian knows that. Um, when you take your car to a mechanic to get the uh, air conditioner fixed, you don't worry about the spiritual state of the mechanic because you think, well, if he's not a Christian, he won't be able to know how to fix the air conditioner because his knowledge is twisted by his rebellion against God. We think, no, you can be a competent mechanic and yeah. and not not um, have not been regenerated. So there's there are theological things that I, I think it's important for for Christians or people in the church to wrestle with. Yeah. And and I think it, it sounds almost a little bit crazy, but I have had Christians tell me that non-believers <laughs> cannot do anything good because they're so oh, no. sin, therefore everything they do is bad. I'm like, so what happens when the non-Christian husband 
hugs his wife and and feeds his child uh, dinner is that not a good yes. thing and 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 we it seems weird to even think that but but it is a something i've heard you know at times Me too. Um, and so it, it so, does so absolutely happen what 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 does the person say when you bring up that example it's a great example I don't remember the last conversation I had on that was three, yeah. four years ago, probably. And so I don't remember it's like, oh, well, that's maybe a different type of good or that's just a, you know, I, I forget exactly. I think that might have been how it went was like, well, that's kind of like an earthly good. I'm saying like a good thing, like worshiping God. I'm like, well, yeah, of course they can't worship God if they're not a worshiper of God. But, right. you know, they're, they're but that doesn't mean you can't desire good things, create mm -hmm. good things, create yeah. beauty and do things that are genuinely good for society yeah. as a non-Christian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause I ask you because I've had that question or that challenge put to me and, um, and I would use the example of, you know, my brother's an atheist and, and he has driven past thousands of convenience stores and never once robbed one. Right? <laughs> and that's a pretty good thing, you know? Yeah. And um, and then the answer is always, well, he's not doing it from the right motive. Hmm. And and I think, well, I, I, I never do anything from the right motive. I mean, <laughs> you know, and that's a different issue. It's a different yeah. issue, motive and action. And so I, I think that's I, I think people who raise that are have an important concern. And that's that, wait a minute, we don't want to say that people are morally and spiritually adequate without God. Um, and I, I guess I would affirm that. Well, I, I know I would affirm that. But it's not the same that people can't do good and important and beautiful and true things without right. God. Because, right. because, or without concern for God, because God put those capacities in them. And um, so in one sense, it's not really without God at all. Yeah. Um, now, there's so, such yeah, a, that's oh, yeah. a tough one. Yeah, I, I, I think this conversation is so important because, you know, I'm, uh, there's one of the biggest struggles I think that, you know, as a high school teacher for 12 years that I dealt with is, yeah. is just kind of dealing with apathy. And there's this, yeah. and, and I've, I've been having conversations with friends of mine who are in churches where the members are just kind of apathetic and just kind of there and going along with emotions. And there's, doesn't seem to be this excitement for evangelism and growth in our knowledge of God and that sort of relationship. And one mm -hmm. of the things that you told our class was that one of the answers to apathy is to awaken people's desires, um, to kind of mm -hmm. help them be aware that these desires really are there and give them a reason to kind of go shopping for desires, uh, as mm -hmm. you put it. So the, the, the first kind of thought in this, and we've talked about it a little bit is, is how do we kind of go about awakening people's desires and kind of solving this issue of apathy that I think a lot of people are, are struggling mm -hmm. with? Yeah, I, I, I think it can be, it can be challenging. Um, you know, a guy who's really good on this is C.S. Lewis, um, some of his essays, like the weight of glory, for example, um, and and I I think we awaken desires by stimulating the imagination, um, and say, well, what if this? What if, um, you know, what if you had all the money you needed? What would you think about doing? All of a sudden, you've got this horizon opened up for you. Hmm. Um, and you can start thinking, wow, I'd love to see this kind of project funded. I'd love to see this. And, and all of a sudden, you can get a kind of excitement. I, I think another issue with apathy among Christians, and um, I should tell you that my colleague Uche, a theologian here, wrote this book on spiritual apathy, which was Christianity Today's Book of the Year last year, hmm. which I'm going to read this weekend when I go on my on my plane trip, <laughs> the book I'm going to bring. But um, I think one of the things is for Christians, there's often a disconnect. And, and the disconnect is between the application we think most about in our Christian life has to do often with what you might call piety, right? I want to pray better. I want to read the Bible better. I want to think about God better. And, and, of course, all of that's important, but that can be a disconnect with how I live my life, right? So I, I've, I've got my family, I've got my work, I've got the, all of the things I need to do, um, and there can be kind of a relevance gap. 
in my mind. Um, and bringing those things together can, can help. Um, so for example, when we, when we think of what it means to grow as a Christian, sanctification, um, I try, I try to help people think that when I, Christian growth is human growth. I'm becoming more human as I become a person who expresses the fruit of the Spirit. That's the kind of human life God created us to have. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a human thing. Um, and so God created us to embody these virtues. And now he gives us his spirit to produce love, joy, peace, patience. The more I embody these things, the more human my life becomes. Um, for me, that's that. Re this really helps me overcome my temptations to apathy, to think, no, it's not just kind of a spiritual hobby on the side. Mm -hmm. This is how I live my human life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that's, you know, uh, I think that's so good. And, and as I'm kind of thinking too, and the, and the apathy where the, I think the desires are so helpful is I've, I've had conversations mm -hmm. with high school students who are not Christians are not yep. really interested in Christianity, but you can, ask good questions, sit down, have that mm -hmm. relationship and, and see the things that they do desire. And I remember one yeah. conversation, uh, finding out this one student in my class had a deep desire for justice. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people do. I think this is one of those things that's, you know, not included yeah. here, but we have this desire for justice. We want to see people get what they deserve. The karma videos on YouTube are super popular, but there's yeah. this understanding of like, look, if someone is super evil and wicked, they deserve to be caught. And, you know, you see someone, mm -hmm. at least maybe here's how I think, you know, someone goes flying by me on the, on the interstate. Or I'll tell you a story. A couple a couple days ago, a uh, guy was, uh, was a lot of traffic. A uh, guy alone in his car went flying down the um, uh, carpool lane, and uh, and sure enough, about ten seconds later, here comes a cop. Uh, comes flying down and pulls the guy over, and you kind of go like, "Good, I'm glad they kind of got what they deserve, so to speak." And there's this yeah, idea yeah. of justice, and then we also hate it. And then one of the big questions mm -hmm. and apologetic questions is, "Why do bad things happen to good people? That's not mm -hmm. fair." And so like, we had this conversation on justice and kind of doing the same thing, how justice points to God, that within a secular worldview, if we are just mm -hmm. here and then we die and we're dead, then there's no mm -hmm. ultimate justice. If those right. bad people never get caught, then they never got justice. And if someone is yeah. a good person and dies young and has a poor life and then dies young, like, man, they, they weren't, there's no ultimate reward for good. There's no ultimate mm -hmm. punishment for justice or for evil. There's no yep. ultimate justice. There's only the justice that we can do here. But if you, we have this mm -hmm. built in deep desire for true lasting justice yep. that is only made sense of within a Christian worldview. Yep. And, no, and notice this, that, that you can't have justice without having judgment. Yeah. And, and this happens in two ways. One is what you're talking about, right? Just, justice happens when judgment is kind of um, bestowed, right? Like the guy gets pulled over. Yeah. Um, um, but it's also a matter of judging that something is just or, or unjust. And so we've got, this, we've got this dichotomy in our culture because there, we're living at a cultural moment the last 15 years where there's tremendous desire for justice, but people are still resistant to judgment. And, and they don't see how these things are, are connected. And, and, and I think one of the challenges among Christians is, is we'll see this desire for justice and we'll think um, either we think they got the issue wrong or something like this. And so we wind up kind of fighting against that desire for justice rather than doing what you did, which is encouraging it. Yeah. Say, well, of course we have this desire let's 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 fan this desire these sparks of desire into a flame um because justice is a good thing and maybe you know all of our concepts of justice have to be corrected as as we grow and and um encounter christ and things like this yeah but um yeah i, I mean it's a it's a perfect example of something that that you can get behind and, and encourage in a student and 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 that gives a very different picture of Christianity right. than they might have which is the Christians are always saying no 
right. rather than saying yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember this being kind of a, a big thing for him of, of not having that much interest yeah. in Christianity, uh, really having this desire for justice. We had a whole chapter on this kind of talked about the, the, how Christian story makes sense of that. And I remember him saying something to the effect of like, wow, now I, I really do think there's a God, there has to be a God because I do have this deep desire for justice. Mm-hmm. And that only does make sense within a Christian story. And I remember that being really right. big and important for him. And so it's those sort of conversations where yep. if we kind of become more, uh, have our eyes open to these deep desires mm-hmm. that people have and try to uh, yeah. wake them up from that apathy that they have, because I think they just have a, a, a false view or a simplistic mm-hmm. view of Christianity, not relating mm-hmm. to these deep desires that are built into them. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I might've told this story when I was at the class in your class, um, cause I only have a, like six stories, but, uh, <laughs> I was in church one day and we were singing some song. I don't remember. And it was a f- perfectly fine song. And there was a line in it about Jesus being the answer. And I thought to myself, you know, people don't want answers. And, and I started to think, what do they want? And this is during, <laughs> during church, the song. <laughs> and I finally concluded people want a question that's worth asking. And, and so, so we can help people find the questions that are worth asking, that they'll recognize as worth asking, like, where does this sense of justice come from, this desire for justice? Yeah. Do we have hope that justice can actually prevail? And um, those questions are worth asking, and those questions put you right on in a sense, gospel territory. Yeah. They put you right on the territory of the Christian story. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think that's what kind of resonates with what, what you saw in the classroom there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, and that's what kind of the, the, the hope is behind this conversation is that there's a lot mm-hmm. of apologetic evidential arguments that we can make right. but when we kind of stay at that level that that's good for some, but it's not as helpful for others. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in if we can step out of that and kind of hit to these real deep emotional yeah. desires that people have, it can resonate in another way and kind of increase the tool bag, so to speak, if you want to call it that, of how yeah. we can go about kind of helping people see the goodness and the truth mm-hmm. of Christianity. Now, now another one of the chapters that you talk about here is this is an idea of, of well, you, you address persons that we've kind of talked about, the value of people. You talk about goodness, freedom, but also beauty. Uh, and I think this mm-hmm. is kind of a hard one for a lot of people is that we're, we're so... Mm-hmm. Uh, affected by our culture's view that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that we don't see this yep. as some sort of transcendental or some sort of deep desire that we can kind of point mm-hmm. to. And it's just completely um, mm-hmm. based on each person. So how can we then use beauty yeah. or how does beauty point back well, to God? Do you, do you know who coined that phrase? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It was, Hume. it was David Hume, right? And, and the Scottish empiricist philosopher, and of course, he thought morality was in the eye of the beholder too, and and um, you know he was a radical empiricist, and there was very little reason could do for us, for Hume. So even though that slogan is so powerful, it's it's like, well, let's not take David Hume's word for it. Um, and and but it but I I found the, that section was the hardest for me to write because I I really had to think hard. I read some stuff and, um, um, it's really, it's really a hunch. I use, I use the story in the book that if, if, if I'm in an art museum with an art historian and, and, and she is explaining the beauty of this painting and I don't see it. I have to conclude there's something wrong with me, hmm. right? I, I'm the one with with the wrong perspective. Not everybody's perspective about beauty is always the uh, the same, and and I you know I'm not very ed- educated about um, especially things like painting, but um, so I I have to assume that I I don't have a a trained palette so to speak to detect beauty um, where it is. Now, it's not that I never recognize it in a painting, um, but that story kind of makes 
grounds for thinking, no, beauty is something more objective. It's not right. just what I like. They're, you're tracking something that's there. And, and of course, it's very complicated. Um, but the, the, a painting will, will reflect some bit of reality in a way that grabs our attention. And, and that's um, what's, what, it, what is beautiful. I think, I think in, the, in the Christian story, it makes sense because God is the artist. Right. And he made a beautiful universe. Um, and of course, the more, the, the more we think about the universe in terms of physics and things, sometimes, it doesn't have to be this way, um, we can kind of think about the universe in terms of its basic parts rather than the big picture of its inter the interaction of all of these things. And sometimes the beauty can be lost on us. But um, you think, why, why did God make so many galaxies? And, and it's just, there's just stunning beauty. Um, yeah. So the fact that God is the artist and God makes us to be artists really grounds the entire creative um, drive that we find in human beings. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, I mention um, when I talk on, I have a lecture I give to students on entertainment since we talk about movies mm -hmm. and music. And so there's an aspect of needing to talk about this idea of beauty and is it objective or subjective? Is right. it purely in the eye of the beholder or not? Because what, at least how I explain it is that the perception of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so your, right. your, your ability, there, there's a difference between what your eyes are kind of picking up, so to speak, mm -hmm. and then what it is that you're actually looking at. Yeah. Um, and I think this is so important because we recognize that our ability to perceive beauty is conditioned by our tastes and our views to where we can yeah. look at something ugly and say that's beautiful as well as we can look at beautiful things and call it ugly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so there, there's a sense of this of, you know, and I try to use the example of food because I think that people understand this a little bit better when it comes to something like food is that there is, there is better food. There is food yeah. cooked by trained, skilled chefs that is better food. And I may not like it because it's like salmon or something, but that does not mean that that's <laughs> not a good objectively good meal created by someone good versus if you take a bunch of trash and throw it on the plate and mix it together with nails and screws, that's, that's not good food. Um, it doesn't matter what someone says when they look at it. And so there's a difference between what you like and you may not like salmon, uh, or you may not like the painting. Uh, but there still is a difference between that thing being objectively good. And so there's yeah. a sense in which within the Christian worldview, um, or like in a secular worldview, it says, no, everything is, you know, uh, nothing is truly beautiful. It's all just subjective. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Uh, there are no facts about aesthetic sort of things mm -hmm. versus in the Christian story, if we're creating the image of God and God is beautiful, then God is the source of beauty. Then there yep. seems to be something that reflects more of him is more beautiful mm -hmm. than that, which doesn't. Yeah. And I think when it comes to beauty, people kind of resist the idea that I, I have to be trained to recognize beauty. Um, and, and they kind of push back against that. And, and, but but the same but the same kind of thing is true with with um, other transcendentals, right? We have to be trained to recognize um, the truth about certain things, yeah. right? If I'm trying to figure out how how does photosynthesis work, I I have to have training in biochemistry to f figure out what's true about it. I can't just look at it and say, oh, clearly um, the Oxygen comes in and then combined with the energy from the sun, it breaks down and, you know, see, I can't even describe it, but you, <laughs> you need, you need training to do that. It's better and than I need, could do. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then you also need training. You think about someone who has a really fine palate, say a, um, a coffee aficionado yeah. who, who through practice can recognize, oh, well, that's a Costa Rican bean because they can it's recognize more chocolatey. those. Is more is that what it would be? See, yeah. you've got it. <laughs> I'm drinking an Ethiopian right now because I like a more fruity, yeah. citrusy coffee. All Central yeah. America, South America is more chocolatey, and so uh, wow, I'm, yeah. I'm drinking something I, I got at Costco in one of those little pods because I roasted this myself. Oh, see? <laughs> my new yeah. hobby, see? coffee roasting. Well, see, but see, that's a perfect example how yeah. how how 
you develop the ability to make fine-grained distinctions of taste, which which gives you uh, the ability to make more accurate beauty judgments. Yeah, the same thing is going to be true with an art critic, an art historian, compared to someone who's just an amateur. Yeah. Um, but this shouldn't surprise us because, you know, if you don't have philosophical training, it's hard to recognize, oh, that's a really good argument. Yeah. That's really worth wrestling with as opposed to, no, that's actually kind of dumb. You need the training. Yeah. Um, so, and all of that does speak to the objectivity of being. Yeah. No, I think that that's so, that's so good. And I, you know, it's funny because, yeah, because I've, I've kind of determined that I think Ethiopian for me, Ethiopian is my favorite type of coffee. So what I've done now is I bought uh, green beans from nine different regions of Ethiopia to now see what region within the country that I like better than the other regions. So yep. I'm tasting all the different regions right now, uh, kind of seeing what regions uh, produce a, a more flavorful coffee and at least the flavor that I but like. The problem with that, Ryan, is, is, <laughs> If, if you train your palate too much, then you're not going to enjoy just a basic gas station cup of coffee. <laughs> well, and, I will tell you, I will tell you, I, I'm also very simple and I like what it is cheap. And so for the most part, I'll drink anything. Um, and so, yeah. I, yeah, I had a, it was fun. I was at a meeting the other day and they brought in a Guatemalan and it was like, okay, Guatemala, uh, this is actually from a city in Guatemala where I used to live. And so that's really fun, uh, but it probably should have these flavors. And I taste it and like, sure enough, I'm like, there's the chocolate, even more chocolate oh flavor. You know? And, and so it was, it makes it fun. But I did go to breakfast. This is the only time it's ever happened. I went to took my wife out to breakfast for her birthday and this breakfast place served what was literally a burnt cup of coffee. Like the beans were roasted so dark oh. that it was no longer dark roast, dark roast. It was a burnt roast. And I said, I'm sorry. Can I get like an orange juice and said, this is burnt. She goes, no, it's just really strong. And I was like. No, it's not just strong. <laughs> you bought burnt beans. I can taste it's burnt. But anyways. Um, That's great. I love that. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's some truth to that. But I think it's also important yeah. to recognize the worldview behind the person who is also the critic. Because if you go mm -hmm. to an art uh, expert, but is coming from maybe a more secular approach. And now, now I think that there's some truth that kind of comes out. And I've talked to music composition people and they're like, no, yeah, there's a right yeah. and a wrong way to compose music that makes something more beautiful and, and not. Yeah. Uh, but if someone is coming, coming from that more Hume approach that like, no, it's just kind of whatever people like. And so therefore, hey, mm -hmm. society says this painting is beautiful. Therefore, it is then we yeah. also kind of recognize that worldview can influence what people are calling beautiful. Uh, it's not just yeah. what we decided as a culture, but, but what uh, has sort of these characteristics at the same time, yeah. because what we're talking about is most people kind of have these drawings within them. We kind of get it right sometimes at least, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think the worldview influences us in, the, in, 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 it, it's not always bad because Part of the reason is that the values of a work of art are more than aesthetic. The work of art can also express um, social values. And then so your reaction to it can be a reaction not just to the aesthetic values, but to the social yeah. values. So, so here's a really beautiful painting depicting the supremacy of the German race in 1938. You think, well, technically it's a, it's a good painting, but the social values it expresses notice how it's expressing these things we want to react against those and and so there are different kinds of values that are that are at work in in a lot of works of art and this is yeah. going to be true um um you know even in works of art that are are less representational like um, um instrumental music and things yeah now yeah okay so i want to kind of wrap up our time that we have together by sure. kind of bringing this back to the person, because I think there's also a connection, not only in kind of showing how our, our deep desires uh, kind of are pointing to God, but I think also kind of how our desires also affect us personally. And you, you spend kind of your whole first chapter talking about this idea of kind of what is um, our, uh, uh, um, I just blanked out on the word, but kind of our, our oh, yeah. core, core identity, identity. Yeah, right? yeah. and this idea of core identity. And, and you've talked about th this example and you, you discussed with our class about, you know, how our core identity and also how our, our desires lead to sometimes having dissonance where uh, there's a disconnect or, or there's something that's not matching up. Um, but one of the mm -hmm. things that you told our classes is, is in relation in context of like relationships, uh, that if mm -hmm. you are like dating a girl who's not a Christian and there's this, there's this conflict that we have of like, mm -hmm. Oh, I think it's, 
you know, relationship is good, but she's not a follower of Jesus. Um, you know, this also, uh, this creates this conflict within us. And the point I want to kind of address here towards the end is that we almost always change our beliefs to match our desires. And yeah. so mm-hmm. I, I would love to kind of speak into this of like how our, why our desires are so important because our desires mm-hmm. often really do guide our life to the point where we will change our beliefs and change our mm-hmm. actions to match our desires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that, I mean, David Hume argued that explicitly. Um, so I hate to agree with Hume, um, it's, but um, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that I think we just find as we observe people. That, that it's easier to adjust my beliefs because our beliefs tend to be a little more theoretical um, around something I really want. And, um, and, and this happens in relationships, you know, with young people who aspire to follow Jesus and then allow their heart to get captured by someone who doesn't want to. Um, and, and, then you experience this dissonance because I really want to be in relationship and that's a good thing. But, but am I pursuing that in such a way that, that it's shaping how I'm going to answer the question, what kind of person do I want to be? Do I want to be a faithful follower of Jesus or do I want to be a person who is in a good love relationship? Of course we want both. But certain situations make us uh, experience a tension between them, and 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 I think for for Christians the answer is 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 in our discipleship process to bring Jesus into our core identity, yeah, and and to say yeah no he's the one I want to order my life around, yeah, and I think that's key. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the the big thing here for parents, for youth workers mm-hmm. who are dealing with kids whose actions or beliefs don't line up with what you hope they would believe or how yeah. they would act, or even in our evangelistic efforts where we're out there trying mm-hmm. to to talk to people. I was just you know having a conversation similar to this with my wife the other day of how do we kind of. Uh, uh, wake people up to the need to mm-hmm. evangelize and to grow deeper in God. And mm-hmm. there's an aspect of when you make Jesus part of your core identity to where you start to mm-hmm. shape your life around him, that then changes your desires. And then your desires mm-hmm. are going to influence your beliefs and your behaviors. Yep. Um, yep. And there's often the, the the issue is that we often only stick to that surface level stuff where we're always just trying to correct behavior, not seeing how mm-hmm. our deep desires and ultimately the core identity is affecting that. Right. That's good. So kind of maybe in the last few minutes that we have here, how would you kind of then go about the big question of what are some maybe steps or how do you kind of go about trying to help someone see or help someone get Jesus to be part mm-hmm. of that core identity? Is it just now sharing the yeah. gospel or some other kind of ways of using desires to kind of well, help them realize that? I, I, I found something that that's really helped me is, is meditating on the stories from the life of Jesus. And seeing how he restores the core identity of the people he engages, right? And I mean, I know we only have a minute. My favorite story on this is the woman with the hemorrhage who, who was unclean. And Jesus stops. She touches him, his clothes. She's healed. But he stops and he, and he makes her tell her story. And, and I think part of what's going on is... is her core identity was crushed publicly because she was declared unclean and he wanted to restore it publicly. And, and, and the way he reaches into her need Hmm. um, and he calls her daughter, the only one in the new Testament, Jesus calls daughter. Um, And, and the, the more I meditate on how Jesus does that, then I think how he can step into my core identity and he can affirm my value and restore my brokenness, then, then that's a much tighter connection than a cognitive thing of what his mission is for me kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so good is that there's, as we've been talking about, there's a there's a goodness mm-hmm. of pointing people to the truth of Christianity, but yeah. then also we have the ability to tell the most beautiful, good and yep. true story. And so, you know, I think it's part of the also kind of what is the story that we tell people? What are we pointing people to? Just yep. a, a, a kind of a, a factual truth or really this beautiful picture of what God has done and right. what he is doing uh, in the world. So uh, it's so good. And then 
again, start shaping that core identity where these deep desires mm-hmm. start to get shaped and align more with Christ. Mm-hmm. And it really does kind of produce a kind of a, a, an amazing effect in people's lives as they start to follow him. So Greg, thank yep. you so much again, not only for writing Thanks. this book, for the work you've done and putting into this, but for coming and lecturing to my class as well as uh, oh, joining sure. here and having this conversation with me for all of my listeners as well. Thanks, Ryan. Any Anytime. All right. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, again, thanks for joining the conversation. Hopefully it was helpful for you. Share it with those around you uh, that might benefit from it as well. Let me make two quick announcements before you click away, please. Uh, Number one is that today, Maven has announced, and I'm the Director of Immersive Experiences at Maven as well, uh, we've announced that we're going to be taking our first open enrollment trip to Utah. This means that if your student, uh, high school or college student, is not connected to a church or youth group that wants to go on a trip, they can sign up themselves, and I will be helping lead this trip. So we'll be doing biblical, theological, training with your student and then taking them on a week-long trip out to Salt Lake City, Utah, where they will be engaging with Mormons uh, and sharing that. I've talked a lot about it on the show before. Now your student has a chance to come on this trip if you want. More information will be in the description below. As well as uh, this is uh, the end of the year, and that means for nonprofit organizations, it's an important time for fundraising and giving. And so we are in the middle of a matching challenge where uh, generous donors have pledged to match all donations up to $13,230. So this will go a long way to helping us continue to train the church, equipping them to have these sort of cultural conversations, to do other interviews on YouTube with more authors and scholars, as well as continue to write training letters and other resources that will help you faithfully think about the Christian faith, live out the Christian faith, and help point people people to these good, true, and beautiful things about Christianity. So if you want to participate in that as well, again, uh, there's more information at think-well.org or in the description below if you're watching on YouTube. So thanks again for having this conversation or for joining me in this conversation today. And I pray that it was beneficial and I hope that it continues to equip you to think well and engage the culture well. So with that, I will see you next time we have another one of these fun conversations. And until then, continue to think deeply about God, Jesus, and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Hi everyone, have a good one. Just won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my